Please, if you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezra, chapter 5. Ezra, chapter 5. And I um, didn't realize how, how much I would, I would really enjoy and, and gain from this study in the book of Ezra. I have, um, I have personally been affected by it in a, in a way that's not necessarily normal. Typically, um, I, as I read it, I don't learn new stuff that I didn't really know before. Right, that it, it, I've been reading the Bible. You know, we've been reading the Bible since we were kids, and so we pretty much have a have a grasp of this or that, and, and the general big picture of it. But reading the Book of Ezra, I, I, I'm been exposed for my lack of understanding of of a huge part of the Bible, the minor prophets, and so this uh, study and these this preparation has caused me to to dig into a, a section of the Bible that has um, up to this point been. Um, been unfamiliar to me. And so as we look in Ezra chapter 5, verse 1, we see into the story, it says, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Idu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. And so in verse 1 of chapter 5, we're introduced to these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. Now, up to this point in chapters 1 through 4, we've seen in the, how the story has gone. They were called, a small group was called from uh, Babylon and brought um, 50,000 of them or so, I think, at, at, all told at the end of this uh, book, will have been brought from Babylon into Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And, and of course, when Nehemiah comes, it'll be to rebuild the walls and so on. But at the end of chapter 3, where they were weeping and crying, and then through chapter 4, where the adversaries stepped in and, um, and, and appealed to the rulers to bring a stop, we find ourselves in the beginning of chapter 5, 16 or so years later. So 16 years or so have passed since the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4. This chapter 4 is, isn't just a, a, a one-week, two-week kind of thing. There are a number of kings we talked about when we were in chapter 4 that have gone through this time period. And so um, now, in the beginning of chapter 5, the building has stopped and the people are going on with their lives. And um, they've been successful in, in establishing themselves here, but the work of God has ceased. And so um, when we introduced to Haggai and Zechariah, it says the son of Edu prophesied to the Jews who were in Jeru Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. It says in verse 2, Then, after they prophesied, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So apparently, a lot has happened between the end of chapter 3, where they were seeing the, the outline of this um, foundation of the building, and chapter 5, where now they, they have to start rebuilding again. So there's a lot that's happened. And, and what I'd like for us to look at today is a little bit more of that background information. And we're going to do that by looking at Haggai. So we're going to look at Haggai this morning and we're going to see what part does he play. Because at the beginning of the book of Haggai, it tells us a little bit more detail about what happens between verse 1 and verse 2. And so if you will, turn in your Bibles to the book of Haggai. 
And that, that just means turn towards the New Testament. And this is going to be um, three books before you get to the book of Matthew. So three books before you get to the book of Matthew, we see the, this spokesman of the Lord who shows up, this prophet. And it's interesting for me, it's, it's important, the, uh, the rulers of the age, whether it be Artaxerxes or, or Cyrus or whatever, these guys think that they're the ones who are telling the Lord's people what to do. But in the end, it looks like the story of the whole Bible where it's God himself who tells them what to do. And one of the ways that he does this here in the book of Ezra is through this man, Haggai. Now, Haggai is an interesting prophet. Haggai is one who tells it like it is. In the book of Haggai, we have a ministry that's only three or four months long. Haggai shows up on the scene. There's not a lot of background information about who Haggai is. When he shows up in chapter 1 of, of, uh, of the book of Haggai, it says, In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And so we don't have a lot of information about Haggai. And Haggai's ministry is all culminated in four simple prophecies or four simple proclamations. And so I'd like for us to look at this book and see what kind of a man does God send to help his people get back on track? What kind of a man does God send to cause his people to start to see again the mission that God has given? And so I've entitled this message, Haggai, the one who tells it like it is. And the first point today is going to be, if you have your notes, the importance of telling it like it is. The importance of telling it like it is. And as we do this first point, I'd like everybody to have your Bibles open. Make sure you have your Bibles open in front of you. Everybody have it open because I want to point to the text and I'd like for us to look at something. So have your Bible open to Haggai. And as we read Haggai's prophecy this morning and Zechariah's next week, it's important to understand that when God's people fall short... When God's people fail, when God's people get distracted, God sends his word to fix them. God's word is what they get. When they fall short, they get God's word. And I remember when I started to preach in the, the book of Ezra, I told you that one of the big themes of Ezra is that God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Throughout the book of Ezra, we have seen over and over again that God's word works. In the, in the first verses, we were introduced to the book of Ezra as the fulfillment of God's word to Jeremiah. In chapters 2 and 3, we saw how the people of God formed themselves according to the word of God and how they performed their sacrifices and ordered their praise to, the, to reflect the law of Moses that had come to them a thousand years before. They didn't look for any new innovation they weren't looking for a new cultural, they didn't, they didn't look around at the Babylonians and say, oh, this is how they worship their gods, so we're going to worship our gods this way. They looked back a thousand years and said, God demands to be worshipped according to his own commands. And so in chapter 2 and 3, we saw that. The directions even that David gave concerning the temple worship. And so in this passage, in the book of Haggai, this kind of thing comes right to the surface. I want to say this is very interesting because in, the, in these 38 verses, 
There are 26 times in 36 verses, 38 verses, that God is described as speaking to his people. Even though the book of Haggai is a short book, four short prophecies, 38 short verses, Haggai says 26 times that God is speaking. In verse 1, now follow with me. In verse 1, we see that the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. In verse 2, Haggai says, thus says the Lord of hosts. In verse 3, look at it with me. Then the word of the Lord came. In verse 5, thus says the Lord of hosts. In verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts. In verse 8, says the Lord. In verse 9, declares the Lord. In verse 11, I have called. In verse 12, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. In verse 13, it it talks about the Lord's message and it says, declares the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, the word of the Lord came. In 2, verse 4, it says, declares the Lord twice declares the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 6, it says, thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 7, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 8, declares the Lord of hosts. Verse 9, says the Lord of hosts, declares the Lord of hosts. Are you following with me? Do you see how many times this short book emphasizes, like the hammer we talked about last week, over and over and over and over. It says God is speaking Verse 10, the word of the Lord came. Verse 11, thus says the Lord of hosts. Verse 14, declares the Lord. Verse 17, declares the Lord. Verse 20, the word of the Lord came. And then at the, at the end in verse 23, it says, declares the Lord of hosts. Declares the Lord of hosts. As I was reading this, I was so impressed with that one thing. This is God speaking There's no doubt about it. When Haggai records his prophecy, he is saying to the children in in the book of Ezra, God has something to say. And so the first point is the importance of telling it as it is. This book demonstrates the significance of God speaking. It's like Haggai has nothing to say at all. It's all this is what God has to say. This is what God has to say. Let's think about this today. Let's think about it together. God's people have have fallen away from their goals, from God's commands. And how does God respond to them? He comes to them and he speaks to them. It's very telling through the story of the Bible that when God does this, he sends a man to proclaim God's will to God's people. And this is what we see in the book of Haggai. We see God's people struggling. and They're lethargic or they're, they're being lazy or, or whatever. And God says, listen. But he doesn't just say, listen. When we read the book of Haggai, it's like he shouts, listen, right? It's the Lord talking. He's declaring. He's proclaiming. It's powerful. This is the foundation of what the Christian church has been doing for centuries and centuries. This is why we have this time in our service. 
so that we can hear God's word. This is the process for for thousands of years that God has had a man stand before his people and proclaim his truth. And it makes a difference. It's very important to tell it like it is. God doesn't just leave it to chance. He clearly, he concisely, and he very forcefully tells the people how it is in his word. Why is that? Why is that important? Because this is how we learn everything. I mean, practically speaking, this is how we're corrected in everything we do. That's how we're wired. We see this principle of people proclaiming, people challenging, people correcting, and that's why we are where we are. Whether it was your your mom in the kitchen, whether it was your dad in the garage, whether it was sitting in the car as you traveled somewhere, whether it was at a restaurant, whether it was at family uh, uh, visitation over holidays, whether it was in your bed and your mom and your dad came in and, and helped to guide your thinking. This is how it happens. This is how God has wired us. And so it's no surprise to see in the book of Ezra that this is what God does. And it's very, very important. We all talk to people. When somebody fails us, we speak about it. Depending on our relationship with them, we will speak to them forcefully or we'll speak to somebody else forcefully about them, but we all do that. It's important that we tell it like it is. When we talk to a doctor, we expect him to say, this is what's going on, right? We expect him to give us some details. That's natural. And so when we read about Haggai, this is something that ought not surprise us. In chapter 5 of Ezra, they have stopped building it. We're going to see why in a minute in the first part of Haggai, but they've stopped it. And so God sends them. The people have failed the Lord. They have stopped obeying. They have gotten distracted and God will have none of it. So he sends his word to them in the form of Haggai's ministry and Zechariah's ministry. And what do they do? They tell it just like it is. The first thing that we're going to see in the book of Haggai, the second point on your notes, telling it the way it is to correct. What what does Haggai do? He tells it the way it is so that he can correct the people. Look what he says, in the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, read it with me as you're you're looking at it. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, we know these people from the book of Ezra. And so we're right there in chapter 5. But here's what he says. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Listen, that's the problem. When Haggai shows up, they're saying, it's not time to build the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Verse 4, is it, to- is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? He's correcting them. Haggai is going to tell it just like it is to correct the way they're thinking. Look what he says in verse 5. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages 
does so to put them into a bag with holes. Man, this is a challenge. This is a, this is a man who's telling it like it is to correct what they're doing, to correct the way they're thinking. In this passage, we can see that they weren't truly worshiping the Lord. They weren't. How can we tell it? Well, he describes it. Their lives are futile as long as they're living for themselves. They're sowing, but they're harvesting little. They're eating, but they're never having enough. They're drinking, but never having their fill. These children of God have lived here for at least 16 years and have stopped trying to accomplish what God had planned. He says, consider your ways. It's important for somebody to look at us and say that. All of us walk through life thinking that we're doing what's right. I mean, that's why we do things. Because in our mind, we're like, this is the way it ought to be done. And we run into conflict because I think it ought to be done this way. And somebody else thinks it ought to be done this way. And somebody else thinks it ought to be done this way. And so at some point or other, we're going to run into conflict. And we're going to need to be corrected because you can't all be right about things that are different and so Haggai comes in and he says hey listen guys consider your ways think about how your life is obedient to the Lord consider your ways because Haggai is telling them specifically that your ways aren't right and you need to be corrected in verse 12 he talks about this Let's go on down. Thus says the Lord of hosts in verse 7. He says it again. Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. See, you looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain and the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. There's a big corrective here. You, he's telling the people, you think you're doing what you need to do and what's right. But I'm telling you, you need to do what I said. You're focusing on planting and you're focusing on harvesting and you're focusing on all this other stuff. But I need you to do what I said. You need to build my house. And he sends this man to correct them. He just tells it like it is. Verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, the, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. They were corrected. He told it like it is, and they were corrected. In the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them or sent him. And look what it says there at the end of verse 12. And the, Lord, and the people feared the Lord. As Haggai comes and says, I, the Lord has been withholding the dew, they think back and they say, oh my. When, when he says that the earth has withheld its produce, they think back and they say, oh, I just thought it was a bad year, but now I see that it was God trying to get my attention. Verse 11, I've called for a drought on the land and, and on the grain and the new wine and the oil and what the ground brings forth and, and on all their labors. And these people are thinking, oh, we just thought it was a, was a poor year. But now God is saying, listen to me. You must obey me. You must get your eyes on me and off yourselves. And Haggai tells it like it is. And what happens in verse 12 is that the people understand and they are corrected. They fear the Lord. In verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you. What a fantastic thing. 
I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, on the second year of of Darius the king. And so Haggai comes to tell it like it is. Haggai comes to say, this is what it looks like. And the key for for Haggai and for the people to understand is that God is there. God brought them from Babylon and gave them their land. But they've begun to treat it like it's his land or their land, not his land. And he says, hey, hold on a second, guys. You're living as if I'm no longer a part of you. But he says, I am here. And he corrects their thinking. As a result of the preaching of the word of God, they saw God. These guys weren't building the the house of the Lord because God wasn't even on their radar. And he says, look, guys, I'm here. I'm here. And their perspective is corrected. In the beginning of chapter two, though, we see another thing. Haggai tells it the way it is to encourage them, not just to correct them. So often we think the Bible is all about correcting, 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 but this is very encouraging. In the seventh month of the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Remember we talked about that at the end of chapter 3 of Ezra. He's asking them, How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Look at verse 4. Yet now be strong. O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. What an encouragement to these people. God comes down hard in chapter 1 to correct them. Get your acts together. Consider your ways. But then in chapter 2, this second message is one that encourages him. This is a message that is needed all the time. Be strong. Be strong. I'm sure the youth can think of this from the book of Joshua, one of the greatest military leaders of all times. And yet when you read the book of Joshua, time and time again, God has to remind him and encourage him to be strong because God is with him. What an encouraging truth. Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all the people. Because God is there. It's fantastic. What an encouraging thing for you and I. Yes, we might have forgotten that God was around. Yes, our lives might reflect a a laziness or a lethargy. Maybe our spiritual walk isn't what it ought to be. But Jesus Christ is real. God is gracious. He didn't just crush them with the ministry of Haggai. He corrected them, brought them back in line, and then said, look, we'll do this together. Be strong. I am with you. The idea of work that we see in verse, uh, verse 4, he says, work, for I am with you. Keep on following the Lord's commands. Keep doing what I've told you to do. That's, that was the success of the first part of the book of Ezra, that they trusted the Lord, that they followed him. 
You know, this is a theme that we see throughout the Bible. I mean, even Jesus says this, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Working, trusting God's presence. It's big. One of the things that challenged me was that they were not working because the sovereign of the land had told them not to work. As a matter of fact, a couple of times they had been commanded to not work. The people around them had been commanded to not let them work. But in this passage, the sovereign of the sovereigns is saying, hey, you get to work. Trust me. Follow me. Oh, it's powerful. How is this encouraging? Because this is what the Lord has placed his people where they are to do his will, to show the world how great he is. God has placed these Israelites in Jerusalem at this time so that the world would know that God is still sovereign. That is encouraging. And he's saying, look, guys, I'm here. I am here. In verse five, it says something very, very interesting. He says, work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. And then in verse five, he says, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. What? Remember when we were studying the the first part of the book of Exodus? And I said, this is the great picture of salvation through the rest of the Bible. Here we are a thousand years later. And God is saying, hey, guys, don't forget the great glory of my work in your people through the centuries. That is a challenge for you and I. He's, it's, it's like the Lord is saying this. Do you remember how I promised Abraham that I would deliver his children, which happened before the Exodus? Then do you remember how I did save Abraham's children? You know the story about how I delivered my people from the might of Egypt? Haggai is talking about this truth. He wants them to remember the glory of what God did when God stepped in and destroyed their military infrastructure and their economy. Do you remember when I did that? And then do you remember how I promised you, I made a covenant with you after that, that you would be my people, we would be a nation. Do you remember how I've always kept my promises? That is encouraging for you and I today. The fact that we can read in the book of Haggai three books before the New Testament, and we can see that this is the God who keeps his promises. Because we're not, we're not a couple chapters, we're not a couple books from when God ultimately keeps his promise in the one that Paul describes as the amen or the truth or the fulfillment of all of God's promises, which is Jesus Christ. This message is powerful. It is very encouraging for you and I. We might forget the Lord but he never forgets us. That's encouraging. I might feel depressed. I might feel anxious. I might be at the end of my my wits. 
I might be holding on to the very end of the rope and have nothing to save me. It is encouraging to know this truth that God promises to never leave or forsake his children. But I don't see him. Neither did they. I don't feel them. Feel him. Neither did they. What did God do? God sent his word into their life and said to them, be strong for I am with you. Now Haggai didn't have the Lord here and saying, see, this is him. He was speaking of God's promise. He was speaking of this ultimate truth of God. That is so encouraging for you and I today. I am with you according to the covenant that I made with you way back in Egypt. This is critical. The God, God's message of salvation just doesn't appear out of nowhere. It's the ongoing application of Christ at work. That's truth. He is a God who saves. He is a God who delivers. He is a God who keeps his promises. That's what we see here. And he's telling it like it is. He says, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What an encouraging passage. Now you and I look back on it and we see the fulfillment of this is Jesus Christ. When he says in this place, he's speaking of the very place where Jesus Christ brought peace. How encouraging is that for you and I? We look back and see the fulfillment of God's promises. And so when he tells it like it is, it's encouraging for you and I. I think we're on the fourth one. Amy, are we in the fourth one? In verses 9 through 19, we see that Haggai tells it like it, tells it the way it is to humble. Write the word down there, humble. Telling it the way it is to humble. Wow, verses 10 and following is, is really challenging. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius or Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Listen to what it's saying. Look, look at the words and, and see the argument. He says, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? Meaning, does, if he has something holy and he touches something else with it, does that make that holy? And of course, the priests answered and said, no. And now look at the correlation to what he says in verse 13. Follow with me in verse 13. So the first thing he's saying, does holy things, if they touch unholy things, does it make them holy? And the answer is no. Verse 13, then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. And there's an interesting kind of dynamic here. Holy things don't make defiled things holy. 
But we know that defiled things make holy things unclean. This is a big deal for you and I. The premise is this. These people aren't saved, aren't made holy by things that they do to make them right. These people are stuck. It's a very convincing, a convicting truth. They don't be, they're not made holy. They can't make themselves holy by doing holy things. Once they're defiled, they're defiled. Once they've sinned, they've profaned themselves. It goes on to say, this is just, this is really important. In verse 14, he says, Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, so that with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Even though they might have holy things that they're trying to do because of their own sin, they can't make it right. Nobody can. You can't make it right. We have been defiled by the things that we have touched and there's nothing that we can do to purify ourselves. Now we know this practically speaking. Everybody who has children knows this is true. It's evident in the way several of my children will not share a drink from a straw. You know this. Here, you want a drink? Oh, your lips touched it. If your lips touch it, it's defiled. That's why when I get a drink, I want I open it up and I lip all over it and I let the kids see because it's now defiled. They don't want any, oh, Corbin will drink it. But, but we know this is practically the case. Once the lips touch it, did you touch it? I mean, that, that, sometimes you look for candy and we've got one child that likes to inspect every piece of candy with their fingers. And I'm just like, stop touching. Oh my gosh. Do you want this one, Dad? Do you want this one, Dad? Do you want this one, Dad? Hey, you want this one or this one, you know? And I'm like, whoa, because you can't fix that. We know this. You can't fix those kind of things. This is the truth that he's talking about. This is the truth that Paul is talk, or that, that Haggai is saying. We see this kind of principle in the return policies of so many stores. You can't, we saw it yesterday when we were at, uh, trying to get a pizza and I was looking at the different pizzas, but I couldn't see them. So I was picking them up and, and Ben grabs my arm and he points to the picture on the top or the thing on the top. He says, you touch it, you buy it. And I was like, oh my, oh, I've touched like six of those, right? Because you can't touch them, you can't put them back. You return food to Walmart and they're going to throw it out. Because you can't make it clean, you can't do it. We all understand this. But it's true of our sinful hearts in a more robust way. Once we've sinned, we're sinners. We're unclean. We can't make ourselves right. The standard that you and I hold for our food is just a shadow of the standard that God holds for his own righteousness. And so what happens? What do they need to do? They need to humble themselves. We need to recognize this truth about us. We cannot make ourselves unclean, no matter how many holy things we do. We cannot get back to purity. We cannot get back to righteousness. No matter how many things that we do in the future, we cannot repair what was broken. We can't do it on our own. And so look at verse 17. What do we need to do? Verse 17, I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me declares the Lord. What do we need to do? We need to turn to him. We need to come to the Lord. 
Verse 18, we need to consider him. Look at verse 18. Consider from this day onward. Consider. We need to, to, to stop trying to fix ourselves and recognize we cannot do it on our own. Telling it like it is, is something that humbles us. The way Haggai is doing it, he is trying to, to put them in their place. And this is a powerful thing. It's very important that somebody come into our life and say, you must get over yourself. You must get over yourself. Verse 19, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have yielded nothing. Look at verse, look at the rest of that. But from this day on, I will bless you. How do we fix ourselves? We can't. How can we make ourselves clean? We can't. Only he can. Only he can bless us. Only he can do this. And that leads us to the last one. In verses 20 through 23, telling it like it is, telling it the way it is for hope. Look in, look in the verse 20 through 23. Haggai tells it the way it is so that they can have hope. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. What a challenge for you and I. There's this big future day coming. God is the one who will work. In this passage right now, Haggai is telling us about him working in, a, in an incredibly global fashion, shaking everything, heaven and earth. Haggai is telling them, pay attention. I know that you're threatened by the kings. I know that you've stopped building because the rulers have told you to stop. But there is one who is sovereign. And he is working. Wow. Telling it like it is so that they would hope in God. Listen to this. Zerubbabel's great, 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 many times a bunch, right? Grandfather was given a promise by God that his great, times a whole bunch more, grandson would bring hope. And he did in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, God shook the heavens and the earth, not only literally, but incredibly, practically. He did something completely unheard of. This great grandson died. Well, everybody dies. What's so incredible about that? Everybody dies because the wages of sin is death. But Jesus died. Even though he never deserved death, practically speaking, he should never die. But he died. One who had never sinned and therefore never lived under our greatest curse died on the cross of Calvary. That's Zerubbabel's great, great times a million grandson. And then he did something even more impossible. He raised himself from the dead. This is the hope of Zerubbabel's promise. Jesus Christ is the new temple that they're looking to. Jesus Christ is the final word that God has sent to a world that was failing. This world is failing. And God sent a word. He is the only one who can make the profane pure. 
or make the unholy righteous by taking your sin and giving you his glory. Got a couple of takeaways this morning. I have a couple minutes. There's two that I want you to think about. First one, it is necessary for us to have this kind of prophetic word in our lives. We need someone to tell it like it is. We have to. We are so distracted by all kinds of other messages that fill our emotions, our finances, our faith. We are really in the same place that these Israelites find themselves, focused more on building our homes than building his. Consider this. Today, we also have the exact same word of God that the Israelites had at this moment. The message of Haggai. Is that incredible to you? That's something that really did please me to think about this week. We have the actual word that Haggai gave to Ezra. That's a powerful connection for you and I. We can look at it. We can determine for ourselves the very same principles that God gave to the Israelites. This is why man must not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. How is it that the Lord will correct us if we refuse to look in this mirror? So often the challenge for you and I is that we might read his Bible or his word, but we only read those things that affirm us. We refuse to read those things that challenge or correct us, not understanding that the truth is you and I need somebody to tell us like it is. We need to read those parts of the Bible that challenge our thinking. That's why we need to read chapters at a time, not just verses. Context, context, context. We need to know what it says. This is why we need to study it. Because we need somebody to correct us. I don't challenge you to read the Bible as some legalistic thing to make me happy. Your only hope comes from this book. Make no mistake, he will correct us eventually. Whether you read the Bible or not, he will correct. The Bible presents God as, as, as someone who gets his way. But faith comes through hearing. And salvation comes through faith. Let's get into his word. We need someone to tell it like it is. How can the Lord encourage us if we refuse to receive his prophet's messages? How can the Lord encourage us if we refuse to let their messages anchor our life in their truth? This big picture stuff that we can't see because we refuse to put the time into it. We need someone to tell it like it is because we need to be humbled. You and I need to be humbled. This is one of the most significant aspects of God's word to take our eyes off of ourselves and place them on the Savior. This is the message of Haggai. Stop looking at yourself and look at the one who's made promises and has spoken. But when we're too full of ourselves to listen to him speak through his word, we miss this great ministry of Jesus Christ. We rebel against him and our hearts grow more and more hardened. We need somebody to tell us like it is. We need his word. We need hope. We need him to tell us how it really is. 
What does our future really look like? Because he's the one that holds it in his hand. We need him to tell it like it is. When I look around this country and I see where it is going, I need the hope. I need the promise that I am not a citizen first of America, but I am first and foremost a citizen of another country, a heavenly one. I need him to tell me like it is so that I don't get all bent out of shape when things don't go my way. Jesus Christ has revealed to us the future. We need him to tell it like it is. The last thing is this. We are in real danger of falling into the trap that this world has laid out for Christians. Listen to me, that it is wrong to tell it like it is. We are in danger of that. I don't know how many times you or I fall into this trap where we don't tell it like it is because we're afraid of what people say. But we need to follow Haggai's example in this. God sent his word through Haggai to these people. Our families, our friends, our community is failing to live up to the standard that God has set for his creatures. Our community is. Even some in in this church, we are failing to live up. We need his word. As a result, they are hurtling towards hell with nothing to stop them but the revelation of God in the gospel message of the church. We don't need to fall into the trap of the world that says, don't tell it like it is. We must tell it like it is. What is this message? It's the same message in this book. It's a message of correction. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. The world needs to hear this. No mincing words here. We care more for the Lord's glory than ours. We need to share this message. We need to share the message that people spend more time focused on their homes than his. We need to share the message that they eat, but they never have enough. That they drink, but are never filled. We need to share the message that they put their earnings in bags that are full of holes. That's the message we need to be sharing with our community. Not that everything is fine as they hurtle towards hell. But we need to tell it like it is. Our lives are futile as long as we live for ourselves. God is going to judge everyone for this. Not for how much money they made, what kind of cars they drove, how well they dressed. We need to tell it like it is so that we can correct them. This is crucial. Judgment is coming for all who have rejected God. Judgment is coming for all who have lived for themselves. And when the church tells it like it is, they must tell this. The wages of sin is death. We must make that part of our message because that's the way it is. You can no longer think that you are okay. You can no longer think that you don't have any worries when God shows up to judge. Church, we need to tell it like it is. That's the message. You are not okay. We also need to tell them the message of encouragement. You can be made right with God because God has opened up the way for you to be delivered. The first temple was beautiful. The second one, not so much. The final one is perfection. It's Jesus Christ. These children can't save themselves. God will save them if they'll just call on his name. We need to have that message for us. Not that we need to try harder. 
but that we need to rest in Christ. This morning, if you're here, I want you to hear this. You must repent and you must trust Christ. That is the only way. That is the way. Believer this morning, be encouraged. Even though you always fail on your own, you are never on your own. Trust Christ. It's a message of humility. We are not saved by what we do to make things right. None of us are. So let's stop trying. We are saved by the God who speaks to us. We are saved through his word. Let's get into it. Let's humble ourselves. Let's get over ourselves. And finally, it's a message of hope. Just like the sins of mankind brings death, the righteousness of one man brings life. This world will fail. The kingdoms will be shaken. Governments will fail. But Christ will never fail. Let's look to him. Let's look to him. Let's pray. Good Lord Jesus, work in our souls today for your glory. Lord, help us to hear your word and to trust you. Help us to, uh, help us to believe. Help us to get over ourselves. Help us to be strong in Christ. Help our souls. Amen.